by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the blessed apostles Peter and Paul, and by our own authority, we pronounce, declare, and define it to be a divinely revealed dogma that the Immaculate Mother of God, the ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed, body and soul, into heavenly glory. Hence, if anyone, which God forbid, should dare willfully to deny or to call into doubt that which we have defined, let him know that he has fallen away completely from the divine and Catholic faith. This is a declaration from the Roman Catholic Church with a very long Latin name, Munificentissimus Deus, and it comes from, uh, from the church to us in 1950, uh, which is not very long ago, that apparently we finally figured out divinely revealed truth. It took a long time for us to figure out and know that God has revealed this particular doctrine. And this particular doctrine, which was apparently revealed in 1950, was so important that if you even dare to doubt it, you have fallen away completely from the divine faith. You are not a Christian at all if you dare to even question the idea that Mary, at the end of her life, was bodily assumed into heaven. Mary, apparently, was never buried. But instead, her body and soul, like Jesus, ascended and lifted into the clouds. Is this true, and what might this have to do with Christmas? Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, please. Acts chapter 1. We're going to read verses 6 through 11. I would invite you to read with me. And if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Thus saith the Lord. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Early on in the history of the Christian church, there was an, an unfortunate split in the broader Christian movement. And the two sides uh, became known, and we still refer to them today, as the East and the West. 
They were given geographical names. And there was two reasons for this, because the hub of Christianity at the time, uh, there was a, the churches on the western side of the European continent, they were Latin speakers, the descendants of Rome primarily, and they were the western part of the continent, and they spoke Latin, and they had certain theology that disagreed with Christians who were living on the eastern side of the continent and who spoke Greek. And so there was a split between the Western Latin speakers and the Eastern Greek speakers, and that split became known as the East-West Divide. Now, Christianity has exploded since then, and it's gone to all portions of the world. And so that's why this can confuse people sometimes, because sometimes you'll refer to a church as being part of the Eastern Church, when geographically from us, they could be considered Western, right? So it's not so much geography anymore, but those were the names that stuck. And so even within Christendom today, we have a huge divide between the Eastern churches, which have some theological distinction from the Western churches. Within the East, because, let me actually start with the West, we as Protestants fall into the Western side of the church. Our theology is very Western. And there's really two churches that make up the Western church, and that's Protestantism and most of Roman Catholicism. So when someone talks about the Western church, they're normally talking about either Roman Catholicism or Protestantism or something we share in common. And so because most of us have lived in, a, in Western Christianity, Eastern Christianity is very foreign to us. It's very hard to find an Eastern church in the United States of America, but they do exist, especially in places like Russia and Greece. All anybody knows is Eastern Christianity. And so there you have churches like the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Assyrian Church of the East or the Uniate Churches. These are all very foreign to most of us, but they are very popular in certain parts of the world. And I wanted to give that, be, that brief background because sometimes, and I've already done this in the sermon series, I will say things like the East and the West don't agree with, on this. And that's what I mean. Uh, it's just helpful background. Uh, that's what I mean when I talk about East and West theologically. Now, among the Western church, there's obviously still a lot of disagreement, just like there's a lot of disagreement among the Eastern churches. And we Protestants take a very minority view on a doctrine known as the bodily assumption. All the churches in the East and the Roman Catholic Church in the West, every single one of them all agrees that Mary, at some point during her life on earth, was bodily assumed into heaven. That she was never buried, but that she was taken up into heaven. Now, there is some disagreement between the East and the West on how exactly this played out. In the West, so basically in most Roman Catholic churches, there are Eastern Roman Catholic churches, but in most Roman Catholic churches, the question of her death is left open. You're allowed to believe whatever you want. So some Roman Catholics will say, well, she was perfect. Remember, we talked about this last week. She was perfect. She had no sin. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But she had no sin. So she can't have the wages of sin. So she never died. So some Roman Catholics think Mary never died, but was assumed into heaven uh, before she could die. Others think, no, she probably did die uh, but after her death, her body was taken up into heaven. So in the West, you can believe whatever you want about whether she died or not. But you are forced to believe that she bodily assumed. In the East, they take a different view. They agree that she bodily assumed, but they dogmatically teach that she did, in fact, die. And that's why in the East, they don't typically call it the assumption. They call it the dormition. 
the Dormition of Mary, because the word Dormition means to fall asleep or to die. And they believe that immediately after she died, her body was carried into heaven. So even though the word Dormition means death, with the Dormition is the assumption, right? You, you, they don't just celebrate that she died. Who would celebrate? Yay, a godly woman died. How great, right? They're not celebrating her death as much as they're celebrating that after her death, she was bodily assumed. So we see that the tradition is not perfectly consistent between the Western Assumption and the Eastern Dormition. But there is obviously this incredible unity that they all agree that her body and soul was carried off into heaven and was never buried. And so we have to ask, if this is the majority view of the world today, why are we Protestants so bold to take the minority position? Why is it that the Protestant church has historically denied Mary's assumption? I want to give you two reasons today why we reject this as divinely revealed truth. And then we're going to conclude as we have been by showing how this actually is somewhat relevant to Christmas. And the first argument I want to give you, part of the reason why we don't accept this as divinely revealed truth is because of the silence of Scripture. The silence of Scripture. The fact remains that the scriptures do not teach this. They don't even hint at anything like this. And this is strange. Some people will say, well, you're arguing from silence, but not all silence is created equal. This is strange because the scriptures do go out of their way to talk about assumptions. The scriptures talk about important people who were assumed into heaven. Let me just give one other than the really, really popular one. I think my slides are out of order here. From 2 Kings, Elijah. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So the scriptures don't mind talking about assumptions. They talk about Elijah's assumption. And according to these churches, Mary is significantly more important than Elijah. She's the greatest of all of God's creatures. She's the most important thing God has ever created by their own church confessions. So if Mary is the greatest of all creatures and she's perfect, why is her assumption completely left out of scriptures but we get Elijah's? They don't, they don't even prophesy. People say, well, maybe she assumed after the Bible was being written. That's not true. The New Testament was written 50, 30 years after the events they took place, some of them even later. But even if it were true, they're not even going to tell us it's going to happen in the future. They're not going to prophesy it. Why is it that if the most important woman in the world assumed into heaven, and this is supposed to be so crucial to the faith that if you don't believe it, you're not a Christian, and the New Testament authors just forgot about it. It's completely unreasonable that we would not find even a hint of this in the New Testament. And maybe you're saying, well, Colin, is it just you who thinks that? Like, I, I don't have the whole Bible memorized. Maybe it's in there and you're just hiding it from us. Well, I just will inform you that most of the theologians who hold to this doctrine will admit that it's nowhere to be found in Scripture. Roman Catholic apologist Luke Ludwig Ott who wrote a book called The Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. He's one of the most important dogmaticians in the entire Roman Catholic Church. And here's what he said in his book about the dogma of the bodily assumption. Direct and scriptural proofs are not to be had. Notice, he didn't say direct scriptural proofs. He said direct 
and scriptural proofs, meaning there is no direct proof of any kind of this belief. Scripture, historical, philosophical, nothing is direct. It's only going to be by implication. There is no direct proof and there is no scriptural proof by his own omission. Apologist Carl Keating, Roman Catholic, put it even more clear as to why they would believe a doctrine that has no proof in history and no proof in scripture. And here's what he says. Still, fundamentalists will ask, where is the proof from scripture? Strictly, there is none. It was the Catholic Church that was commissioned by, the, by Christ to teach all nations and to teach them infallibly. The mere fact that the church teaches the doctrine of the assumption as something definitely true is a guarantee that it is true. Why does he believe it? Because the church says so. He doesn't need scripture. He doesn't need history. He doesn't need logic. He doesn't need philosophy. In 1950, the church declared it. That's his proof. It's simply not in the apostles. The apostles did not teach this. Now, I will admit, a minority of people who hold this doctrine do try to claim it's in the Bible. There are some who claim it's in the Bible. If you want to see it, turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, read verses 1 through 6 with me. The very last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had, has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. There is the teaching, allegedly, that Mary bodily assumed into heaven. Ironically, there's no assumption in here except for Jesus's. But the logic is that, well, John sees a vision and he sees a woman in heaven bodily. So obviously, there's a bodily woman in heaven. And we know that this is Mary because who does this woman give birth to? The Messiah. Only one woman ever gave birth to the Messiah. So Mary is in heaven with her body. That proves that at one point in time, Mary assumed bodily into heaven. There you have it. Um... Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to preach this text. So I can't tell you what this text is saying. But we do have time for me to tell you what it's not saying. And it is absolutely, emphatically, not saying that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven. Nor is it even implying that. And I can give you lots of reasons. I don't even need the text to give you. I will give you textual reasons. But we don't even need textual reasons to reject that. First and foremost, we have to wonder, before we, at the outset, we have to wonder... What are the odds that a doctrine, again, crucial to the integrity of the Christian faith, 
would be found in one passage of the entire Bible. And it would be found very implicitly in this passage. And it just so happens to be in the most confusing, image-laden book in the entire Bible. They go to one mysterious passage in the most mysterious book in the entire Bible to say that is implied here one single doctrine crucial to the integrity of the Christian faith. That's, that, that seems a little odd to me. Can you imagine if the only evidence we had that Jesus died on a cross was six verses in a symbol-laden chapter in Revelation? It's, it's, it's quite convenient. But beyond that, I could, we could say that if you are going to interpret this as an implication that Mary bodily assumed into heaven, just know that no one before 1950 agrees with you. We actually have a good amount of commentary on this text by some of our earliest theologians. And none of them interpreted the woman of this text as Mary. None of them. They all interpreted it as one of two groups. Either a symbol of the Christian church or a symbol of the nation of Israel. But every single church father saw in this text not Mary, but a symbol for the covenant people of God. There were some, a minority of the church fathers who argued it's by Mary, but they all qualify it's only by extension. It's first and primarily about the church, but then it might also be about Mary in a, in a lesser qualified sense. So some thought it was Mary and the church, but all of them saw it as being the church, and many of them excluded Mary, saying this can't be Mary. This is either the church or maybe even Israel. And so let's get into the textual issues with this interpretation so you see why the church fathers were saying there's no way this is a real literal woman. This is not Mary. First and foremost, if Mary assumed into heaven, why is she giving birth to Jesus? Because in this text, there is a pregnant woman giving birth and then there's a dragon who wants to kill the child. When did Mary give birth to Jesus? Before or after her assumption? Before. Right? Mary gives birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. Jesus grows up. Jesus dies, resurrects, and ascends. Then at some point, Mary ascends. So what happens after she ascends? She goes into heaven and she gets pregnant again? No. Mary gave birth to Jesus in Bethlehem, not in heaven. So how is the woman giving birth in heaven? Mary. She didn't give birth in heaven. She assumed long after her pregnancy. Another additional reason is... is why is she in heaven at all? As we talked about, giving birth was supposed to have happened on earth. Jesus wasn't born in heaven. He was born on earth. But this child in Revelation is apparently being born in heaven. Two related points. But, in, uh, but, uh, and, and, but then we just have to ask, what about all these other details? So this woman who gave birth, when did she ever, for example, according to verse 6, flee into the wilderness where God nurtured her for 1,260 days? Did that happen to Mary? Did it even typologically or metaphorically, what's the connection? Clearly, this text is just simply not about Mary. By the way, there's one uh, argument from this text that's, it's not, this doesn't apply to the East, but it applies to the West. Look at verse 2 with me. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. This is an incredibly difficult verse for Roman Catholics to interpret because their church teaches that Mary had a painless childbirth. And you know why? What did we learn last week that they believe about Mary? 
that she's perfect. And guess what Genesis 3 says about child labor? What is it a result of? Sin. What does Mary allegedly not have? Sin. So what could she not have felt? The pain of childbirth. Roman cap, the, the Roman church teaches that you were not allowed to believe that Mary had any pain during childbirth. So they have to take this and make it a metaphor. How convenient. We're just going through picking and choosing. No, the woman's not a metaphor, but the childbirth is a metaphor. The, labor, the, the woman's not a metaphor, and the son is not a metaphor, and the birth is not a metaphor, but the dragon is, and the ba- labor pain is. It's, it, they're just finding whatever they want to find that agrees with their church. The, the, the problems are copious. This text is not about Mary. But here's the additional problem. Let's just assume that it is. Let's just assume this is about Mary. Where is anything said about an assumption? It's not there. Oh, Mary's in heaven with a body. We're all going to be in heaven one day with a body. That doesn't prove an assumption. This text is not about Mary, and it's not about an assumption. And no one prior to 1950 ever thought this text was about Mary or an assumption. This is crammed into the Bible so that they don't have to stop believing their church. In other words, point number one, we have no theological basis to believe this doctrine. Now, here's what you might want to pivot and do. You might say, okay, I agree with you, pastor. This is not a theological belief. And it's not important to Christianity. But it can be a historical belief, right? Could I at least believe it on the basis of history, right? Martin Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. The Bible doesn't teach that. You don't have to believe that to be a Christian, but I, I believe it just as a fact of history. So maybe Mary bodily assumed into heaven, and it's not a divinely revealed dogma. It's not a theological belief, but maybe it's just a fact of history. So if we were to turn to the history books, would we see attestation that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven? You'd think someone would have talked about it. The problem in our second argument is church history. There is nothing in church history about a bodily assumption of Mary. Nothing. It's not a theological belief, and let me tell you now, it's not a historical belief either. Stephen Shoemaker is not just a historian, but he actually falls into what's called a Mariologist. He just studies Mary. And he wrote a book just on this doctrine. And here was his conclusion. There is no evidence of any tradition concerning Mary's dormition and assumption from before the 5th century. 400 years went by after the death of the last apostle before anyone even started talking about a bodily assumption of Mary. 400 years. We have no evidence in the first 400 years of post-apostolic Christianity that anyone believed Mary was bodily assumed into heaven. Now, here's what some people say. Shoemaker is neither Roman Catholic nor Eastern Orthodox. So maybe he's just biased, right? Maybe he's just got an ax to grind against this doctrine. The problem is, is the, people, the historians who are Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox agree with him. Eamon Duffy had the integrity to admit that this doctrine has no attestation in history, saying, quote, clearly there is no historical evidence whatever for it. Clearly there is no historical evidence whatever. He's not even being ambiguous here. There's nothing. Juniper Carroll, another Roman Catholic theologian, shows the same kind of honest integrity by admitting we have no early historical evidence unless you count the heretics. The earliest sources we do have 
are from heretics. The, the earliest witness we have to the idea that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven was from a group of documents known as the transitist literature. And they were written by a person we called Pseudo Melito. Now his first name is not Pseudo. Pseudo is a Latin prefix for false. If, if you operate by a pseudonym, it means you have a false name. So Pseudo Melito means false Melito. Why would we call someone that? Because whoever wrote it was trying to pretend to be a man named Melito. Meaning, whoever wrote this knew it was garbage. But they wanted to pass it off by it was written by the great Melito. So they forged it. So it was written by heretical liars. The transitist literature is heretical documents written by liars. And by the way, if you want to disagree with me that they are heretical, I'll go for it. Roman Catholics are not because Pope Galatius I in 495 explicitly and publicly condemned these documents as heretical. The best historical witness we have of Mary's assumption comes from known heretical writings written by an author pretending to be someone else a little under 400 years after the death of the last apostle. That's not good historical reasoning. Perhaps the most devastating historical witness to this doctrine, however, comes from a theologian named, everyone I've read pronounces or listened to pronounces this differently. I say Epiphanius. Sometimes we'll call him Epiphanius. But tomato, tomato. Epiphanius. And he was living and writing in 377. So that's still kind of late, but that's still pretty early. And in the year 377... He was concerned because he heard all of these contradictory traditions about the end of Mary's life. Some people were saying that she was a martyr, that she was killed for her faith. Other people were saying that she never died. Other people were saying she did die and we have her tomb. Other people were saying, no, she did die, but we have her tomb. There was all of this confusion about what happened to Mary. And it was confusing because the New Testament just kind of falls off. We see Mary at the beginning of the book of Acts and then we just never hear about her again. So he was concerned about these contradictory traditions. So in 377, he did a research project. And by the way, he was living in Palestine. So he's actually not very far from where these events all allegedly took place. He's living in proximity to where Mary lived. And he's living pretty early, 377. And he does this huge, extensive report to figure out what is the tradition surrounding Mary. And here's how he ends his report. Quote, no one knows her end. In other words, nobody knows what happened to Mary. There's, there was obviously no tradition handed on from the apostles. There was nothing but confusion and arguments and contradiction. And when he studied it, he said, I can't figure it out. No one can. So when did it gain popularity? If I'm saying there's no historical evidence, why do people believe it today? In the West, the earliest reference we have to an Orthodox theologian Affirming it is a man named Gregory of Tours in 590 AD. In the East, it's dated to church liturgical documents written in the 7th, some, some dated to the 8th century. So essentially, 500 years after the death of the last apostle. And within that 500 years, we have no one talking about this except one source of her heretics. And then suddenly, 500 years later, it catches fire and we're supposed to believe if you deny it, you're not a Christian. 
This is a novel doctrine, which means it's new. It's not apostolic. It's not biblical. It's not historical. But I submit to you that it's dangerous. It's not just unbiblical and ahistorical. It's dangerous. Because I think this myth distracts us from one of the chief miracles of the New Testament, which is Jesus' bodily assumption into heaven. We do believe in a bodily assumption, and we do believe in a bodily assumption that is so crucial to Christianity that if you deny it, you're not one of us. You are not a Christian if you deny this bodily assumption. But it isn't Mary's. It's a bodily assumption that is clearly attested to in both Scripture and in history, and it's the bodily assumption of Jesus. Let's go back to our first text in Acts chapter 1. Read with me verses 9 through 11 again. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the bodily assumption you need to believe in. This is the bodily assumption that, believe it or not, makes Christmas special. I believe this is a Christmas text. I really do. And I say that because this divine revelation, which can be found in every age of the church, this ascension of Jesus is crucial in our understanding of who he is. You cannot rightly appreciate the child that was born in Bethlehem if you don't really fully understand who he's supposed to be. And the Bible teaches us that the ascension is one of the key components which teaches us of who Christ is supposed to be. It does so in more ways, but we're going to focus today on the fact that he is king. The ascension teaches us that that child born in Bethlehem is king of kings and lord of lords. What we celebrate at Christmas time is the birth of the lord of the nations. And the ascension was his crowning ceremony. That is when the crown was put on his head. Christmas is so special because on it, our Lord was born. You see, the scriptures are very clear that Christ's ascension was to the Father's right hand. And what it means to be at a king's right hand is it means to share his power and authority. To be the right-hand man of the king is to have his power and his authority given to you. And that is what the ascension tells us. He ascended to the right hand of God, which means he has the power of God and the authority of God. The Apostle Peter makes this connection. Jesus Christ has gone into heaven, that's the ascension, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus has been made Lord over every power, over all the angels, over everything because he has gone up into heaven at God's right hand. As a matter of fact, the great Christmas prophecy of Isaiah 9 focuses so much on this issue of kingship. Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government 
shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and withhold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do you see what's so great about the Messiah? He's the king. He's the Lord. Paul tells us the same thing. After talking about Christ's incarnation... In his birth, in his death, Paul says, what are the results of his incarnation and his death? And he tells us these are the results. That God has highly exalted him, including the ascension. And after his ascension, after his exaltation, what has happened? And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does his ascension mean? What does his exaltation mean? He's Lord of the world. He's the name above all names. That's what the ascension means. That's why this is a Christmas text. I'm sure you get the point, but I really want you to see it. So turn to the apostles' favorite chapter of the Bible, Psalm 110. Book of Psalms is somewhat in the middle of your Bible. Turn to the middle of your Bible and then turn to Psalm 110. It's a short psalm. We're going to read the whole thing together. This is the Psalm of David. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. I called this chapter the apostles' favorite chapter because Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. The apostles loved this verse. They loved Psalm 110. And for good reason. It's filled with, it's pregnant with meaning. We don't have time to get into all of it today. But what I want us to see is how concerned Psalm 110 is with the ascension of the Messiah to make him the king. Look at verse 1 again. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So we have a prophecy of the ascension in the Old Testament. We have a prophecy that the Messiah is going to be raised to the right hand of God. He's going to ascend unto God's right hand. And what happens once the Messiah takes his seat at the right hand of God? Until I make your enemies your footstool. He's a conquering king. He is a king who's interested in colonizing the entire world. All of his enemies will one day 
be conquered and subdued under his feet. And he's going to reign on a throne until every last enemy is destroyed. That's what kings do. We see this again right away in verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. You know what a scepter is? You ever seen a, a painting of a king and he's got some really long staff? The scepter has been around for thousands of years. And a king's scepter was a symbol of his authority and his power. If you held the scepter, you were the king. God has given Christ a scepter from heaven so that he can, what, verse 2, rule in the midst of his enemies. He's ruling over his enemies with the scepter from God at the right hand from God. Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This is why we don't just call Jesus king. He is the king of kings. There are lots of kings on earth. Christ is above them. We know this. How? Because they answer to him. And if they don't repent, he shatters them. There's lots of authorities on earth. There's kings, there's chiefs, there's presidents. Christ rules over them all. And if they don't repent, he will destroy them. Because he's ascended to the right hand of God, body and soul. He is the king of the earth. He is a conquering Lord. So why is Christmas so special? Why should we be filled with joy? Why did the angels say that this was good news, which should fill our hearts with joy? I remember after midterm elections, isn't it amazing how devastating it is when evil people are elected to rule over you? But at the same token, how exciting is it when good and just people are elected to rule over us? So let me ask you, Christ has been made king. Is this good news or bad news? Well, you could argue if if you're one of the kings of earth who don't repent to him, then this is bad news. Because he's going to shatter you and he's going to fill the land with your corpse. But for his people, this is good news. Because what did Isaiah 9 tell us? How is he going to rule? With justice and righteousness. Jesus is a good, just, righteous, faithful king. This is good news. The world is being run by a holy Lord. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God. So what is so special about Christmas? On it, we celebrate the low-born king. The long-awaited royal ruler. And this should fill us with joy. Just as we sing in that famous Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. Why? The Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Joy to the world. Why? The Savior reigns. And He rules the world with truth and grace. And He makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and the wonders of His love.